0: All right, good morning, everybody, and welcome to everybody joining us here live in our new uh, Museum District campus, and I want to say good morning to everybody joining us over at our Timber Grove campus in the Heights, as well as 8200 Washington Avenue. They're gathered there um, for two services today, 945 and 11. If you haven't been to Timber Grove yet, you got to check it out, but in the meantime, let's just tell our Timber Grove family how much we love them. Say, hey, Timber Grove. Yeah. All right. <laughs> that was great. There's more enthusiasm than I expected at 9.45 in the morning. So good to see everybody. If you're new here especially, welcome to the story. I'm excited to continue our message series that I think is about a topic that hits close to home for us all. It's about romance and our pursuit of, of love and intimacy, commitment and marriage. And uh, it's, a, it's a series called In Search of a Soulmate. We have to talk about issues like these At church, I strongly believe, not just because it's, like, gimmicky, like, well, my friend hates church, but if we talk about sex, maybe I can invite him. Like, no, that's not the reason. And it's not that the church should become some kind of meat market where singles can finally find the one, like, if that happens, great. But that's not why we do this. It's because of messages like this email I received a few years ago when I talked about a similar subject. This young woman who's a member of the story once wrote, the Bible has so little to say about how I date or who I date. Didn't people get married off by their parents around age 15 in Bible times? So leaning on the Bible when you're single feels like a waste of time at a time in my life when I feel like I'm racing against the clock. It's easier to rely on my gut, the advice of friends and family, and even Google once in a while, God forbid, (laughs) she's just being honest, than it is to search the Bible for guidance while single. Messages and sentiments like these are reasons why we need to talk about dating and relationships, singleness and marriage in the church. Because I think, I hope we can all agree that no matter where you stand religiously, um, the world of dating is kind of a nightmare can I get an amen from anyone in the congregation? Okay, a lot of women speaking up. All right, so there's <laughs> the world of dating, definitely a, a grim, bleak world right now. And I can't say that marriage is that much better because we know that almost half of all marriages in America end in divorce, right? And so um, what's happening in the world and is what people are hearing in the world about dating and marriage and commitment and intimacy, is that working? Like, Dr. Phil, how's that working out for you? That kind of thing. Like, like, is that working? And if you're not a person of faith and you don't really believe that guys like me, pastors, holding books like the Bible, really have anything poignant or meaningful to say about your search for love in this life, what I would just ask you to do is to listen to what you hear today and compare a biblical perspective on these issues to what the world says on them and the outcome of those different uh, worldviews. Like, if it's not working the way the world's doing it, then maybe we should consider alternatives, and maybe the Bible provides an alternative. Uh, my, my baseline contention today is that if you're following Jesus, then he has something to say about every facet of your life. And when you're all in with Jesus, he has, he, the Bible has something meaningful to say about every part of your life, including your romantic pursuits, including your relationship, and so it can't be that easily parsed out, all right? So um, from a biblical point of view, when we look at relationships, and uh, just like many parts of your life, when we look at romance, the key, the key to starting well in your dating life or in your marriage is to define your vision, the vision that you're pursuing or striving toward. I talk about vision all the time because the Bible talks about vision all the time. Bible says without a vision, people what? Perish. So it's pretty serious business. And a vision is defined very simply as something like this. So it is a mental image of a preferred future. So if you have a vision for your life, it is a mental image that you have in mind of your preferred future. And our belief as Christians is that the Holy Spirit can give you God's vision For your life, including for your romantic pursuits. If you're married, for your marriage. If you're single, for your future, whatever that looks like, God can give you a vision for His preferred future for your life. And once you have some kind of vision, and vision can change over time, but once you have a vision in mind, you strive for that and only for that. So you don't waste time or energy pursuing any interests that don't line up with that vision. So if you're Vision is, if you're single, you want to be married one day, which as, as outdated as marriage seems to be these days, I still think most people who are on the dating scene want to get married. All the data, bear that out. Like, most single people want to get married. Maybe not tomorrow. They're like, I'll get married in 10 years or something. It's like, okay, um, well, that's still your vision. You know what I mean? That's still the baseline of your vision. And I think about when Gio and I met, we were we were 18, and um, we got married by 20. And so I feel a little weird talking about dating because I've never really been on the dating scene. It's like, you know, she robbed the cradle, basically. I was younger than her, and I don't know, man. Um, but I, I think even as young as we were, we both had some kind of vision we were chasing. She wanted to marry a man of God who had pastor potential. That's what she will tell you. It wasn't about my looks or my money or anything. (laughs) She just wanted pastor potential. That's what she felt God calling her to do. And I wanted a cute girl to hold or something. I don't know. (laughs) I was like, but seriously though, I had no interest in messing around and just having a good time on the dating scene. Even at that young age, I saw the value in settling down early. And that was a part of the vision. And that's not for everyone. and I'm not saying that's the only way to do it at all. It's hard. But that was a vision that we both valued, and that's part of how we ended up together. Now, if you're single and on the dating scene and you have a vision to get married, then you don't date anyone who isn't ready to commit in any way. You don't put yourself out there just to meet new people and have some fun. You know, and if someone's not willing to date seriously... Or it's not the right time for them, then you don't spend your time on them. And I know that sounds a little cutthroat, but listen, putting yourself out on the dating scene is a very um, difficult, intimate, personal thing that can really eat you alive. As I talked about last week, the dating scene is pretty brutal, and it eats people up. Married people, on the other hand, if your vision for your preferred future is to stay married, which I hope it is. (laughs) I pray, I pray that it is. But I think most people's vision is to, to stay married. I talk about that all the time to my friends or my kids. I'm like, I have this dream. It's a very simple dream that one day, many years from now, I'll be laying on my deathbed or something. I don't know. It's like one of those scenes out of a movie. And they're around me and they know and I know that I've been faithful to their mom for my whole life. To so one woman. I've been with this woman and, and I've, I've held her hand and none other for my whole life long. Like, that's a vision. And so whenever competing interests threaten that vision or, or, or contradict that vision, I don't waste time on them because I'm living simply toward the vision God's put in my heart. And I think vision is so key but so easily overlooked, whether you're single or you're married. And so the, the first thing I would say today is, uh, have you prayed for a vision? for your romantic life? Let's call it romantic life, even if it's not that romantic at this point in time. (laughs) Have you prayed for a vision? If you're single, have you prayed for a vision for your single life in Christ? If you're married, have you prayed for a vision for your marriage and allowed God to to give you a vision for his preferred future? Now, if you take what we're gonna talk about today and make it your vision, I believe it has the power to change your life in ways most sermons don't. Let's be honest, 98% of the stuff I stand here and say is totally forgotten by all of you in short order. What I preached about last week, exactly. Okay, so I don't don't remember either. (laughs) So don't feel guilty, okay? But this is one of those practical messages that I've seen change people's daily life right away after I talked about this concept a few years ago, three different people that are in my circle that were single have gotten married since, and the other one, two of them got married, the other one's engaged, because they changed the way that they dated. And they'll tell you this. And it's nothing I did. I'm just a messenger. But like marriages can be saved by this simple thing we're going to talk about today. So I hope you're dialed in with me today. And when I introduce the concept, it's going to really underwhelm you, so hang in there with me, because it's a really simple kindergarten concept. And here it is. We're talking about finding romance in the friend zone today, all right, which unfortunately is the last place most of us expect to find romance, because that's where we put the repulsive people, in the friend zone, the ones we see no possibility of romance with at all, And so, this is so counter-cultural that we've got to peel back some layers and see uh, what we're talking about. So, um, if you're not dialed into any kind of modern culture, you may not be aware of the friend zone phenomenon. There's this idea that you categorize people in the friend zone like when you demote them from your prospects of real romance. So, if you decided someone's, you just can't get over how they smell or you can't get over... Uh, their lack of funds, or you can't get over whatever limitations you find in this person you're interested in, uh, you, you demote them. You relegate them to the friend zone. Let's just be friends. From the Bible's point of view, you should never put the word just in front of friends. Like, biblically, friendship is preeminent. Friendship is first. And the other stuff is just tertiary, secondary stuff. Friendship is primary. It is the primary vision for, uh, I would say, romantic, loving, lasting relationship. Now, if friendship could become the frame for the vision of your future in terms of romance and love, uh, I I think that uh, what we would find is that friendship is the seedbed where real romance can grow. The good news is, contrary to what that young woman wrote to me, the Bible has a lot to say about this, about friendship, and if friendship really is where real romance grows, then the Bible has a lot to say about your romantic pursuits. I'm going to talk about two words found frequently in the Old Testament, two Hebrew words that define and describe or or illustrate what true friendship is, and I, I want us to think about friendship in terms of our romantic pursuits. The first one is found in Genesis chapter two verse 18. This is just one verse, so I'm not going to open my Bible, and we'll do that in a minute, but this is very simple. The Lord God said, and we've read this same passage like six weeks in a row, if you've been around. We've been just camping out in Genesis. The Lord God said, it's not good for the man, Adam, to be alone. So this is after he made Adam, before he made Eve. It's not good that Adam is alone. And every man here knows exactly what the Lord God is talking about. Idle hands have been the devil's playground for forever. It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So you know how the story goes from there. Um, uh, The man makes the woman, God makes the woman from the man, from a rib of the man. And then there's Eve. Right? And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. This Adam sees Eve, and it's like, wow, he's blown away. But, but God has made for him a helper suitable. That word is one word, helper suitable, one word in Hebrew. It is a word called ezer. Ezer uh, is repeated a couple dozen times in the Old Testament. And it is a word that simply means helper, or servant, although there's more edge to it than servant. It really actually most often means ally in battle. That's how it's used in the Bible. Sometimes Christians make the mistake of diminishing Eve's role in the story as though Adam was first, most important, Adam, and then Eve is his little helper. And I hear people like Christians talk about the story in that way. And that would be fine and it probably boosts male egos and that's whatever, but that's not biblical. The only reason I know this is because every, and I mean every other time, the word ezer is used in the Old Testament. It's used to describe the character of God and his posture toward us. So there's Eve who is an ezer to Adam and then all the other times ezer is used it's God with us. And I, I provided a, an example from First Samuel 7, verse 12. It says, then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen, and he named it Eben Ezer. Eben Ezer. So Eben is stone or rock. Ezer is help or helper. Stone of my helper, stone of my help, Ebenezer. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Like, that's where that comes from. It's not Ebenezer Scrooge. Although the fact, you should think about the fact that Ebenezer Scrooge is named Ebenezer in light of today's, anyway, that's a whole different, it's fascinating why that name was chosen, because he had a lesson to learn about friendship. And so do we. So, Ezer is helper. Helper. So Eve was created to be Adam's suitable helper as to be a friend as God is a friend. And so when Adam was lacking something, it's not good for the man to be alone. God saw his his deficiency God saw this man's loneliness, and knowing what this man really needs, and what every man really needs. When God said, "It is not good for the man to be alone," God made for him a supermodel that's curvy but not heavy, and <laughs> and uh, witty but not mouthy. And like, what did God make for the man in his deficiency? None of those things you might think, if you looked at the headlines in the magazines and the checkout line at stores, no. God made for the man a friend, an there a helper, an ally in the fight. And we should also assume that from that point forward, part of Adam's role in Eve's life was the same—to be an Ezre. There's no reason not to think that that was. Mutual between them. So, if you're single and hoping to get married, I believe what you really should be looking for is a friend, first and foremost. And if you're single and hoping to get married, and certain things are, let's say, standing in the way of you accepting or going to the next level with someone who has been a true friend to you because they don't meet your physical specifications or they don't meet your financial ones. I'm talking to both men and women here. I think we need to recalibrate the vision that we are striving toward. You know, the words, if you're single and you have a vision to get married one day, I believe what you should be looking for is a friend, even if he's got a little bit of a belly on him or a little too little hair up top or whatever it is that's bothering you about him, his breath. Like, you know, they sell products (laughs) for that. Like, get that man some mints and a gym membership and get him to the aisle. I'm telling you, man. You do not understand what you're missing out on. If you're, you're, I'm not going to stop, but (laughs) sisters, I just got to tell you, you're missing out on an opportunity to have a man worship the ground you walk on. Marry a man who's a few levels below you in the physical department. Think he's ever going to cheat on you? (laughs) No, man. Stop looking for JFK Jr. up in here. It's like, you know, it's like you're, you're cutting off the, the, the supply chain of real romance by looking for something other than true friend. I could say the same to men, by the way. Men have a problem with women who don't look certain ways or treat them a certain way, or men, men often have a block when it comes to single mothers. I just think you're missing out. You're missing it. the, the beautiful opportunity that you have to cultivate real. Friendship, real romantic friendship that would last if you let it. <clears throat> so I think um, sometimes in our marriages, when, we're, when what we want is healing or we want to strengthen our marriages, we believe the world's lies, that what our marriage is lacking is more time away together. We need a vacation. Or I need to get some new lingerie, and <laughs> it's got to be super weird to hear your pastor say that out loud. But I, I need to, I need to just—we need to spice it up. You can spice it up, but then what? You're still just you. And they're still just them. It's not what you need. You don't need to learn these little tactics, like I learned how to use I language when I'm mad instead of you language, and it's like, <laughs> okay, but you're tinkering. What you need is to cultivate the friendship. What you need is to be a friend, to be friends to one another. Uh, Sometimes we're we're looking for the fire when we really should just be looking for um, a forever friend with benefits. That's what marriage is at its best. That's what it is. And the data bear this out. A uh, recent study, study of uh, many couples uh, married and otherwise said, how satisfied are you in your current relationship on a scale of one to five? One being not satisfied at all, five being super satisfied. Those who said, I consider my partner to be my best friend, rated their happiness quotient uh, 3.65. But those who said, I don't consider my partner to be my best friend, someone else is, um, rated their happiness in their relationship at two point seven which I think that's an interesting study. I mean, that's not, obviously, um, it's not a perfect study, but but I think it, it points at something, the value of friendship. The problem with all of this is that somehow, somehow, over the last couple of generations, we have lost sight of the art of friendship. We've gotten really, really bad at friendship. And not everybody, not everybody, but a lot of us have really gotten to this place in life where we stink at friendship. And people talk about it all the time. Guys talk about this all the time. Like, I don't even know how to find friends in adulthood and how to keep friends when I've got all these other obligations. Who are your three best friends? If I asked you to name them right now, could you? There's a few of you nodding your heads. You're the lucky ones. You're the lucky ones. Because if you can name your three best friends, and none of them are feline or canine, You're in the minority, all right? They have to be human, all right? Um, most people cannot, and this is, uh, this is interesting. It's a struggle for a lot of us, and, uh, and, and this has really changed a lot. All the data has changed on friendship between 1990 and 2020. Nobody really knows why. We're finding friendships so much harder in 2020s than we were in the 1990s because we've got the internet now. How are we worse at friendship? We know so many more people now. Uh, Maybe that's part of the problem. I don't know. It's easier to know a whole bunch of people as acquaintances than it is to have a few as real friends. But I, I confess I've been a failure at friendship for most of my adult life as well. In fact, it wasn't until I became a Christian in 2013 that I really thought I needed to take friendship more seriously at all. Because when you're not following Jesus and there's really no uh, defining principle, let's say, for your life, morally or ethically speaking, then you don't need friends to hold you accountable. You don't need friends to, to keep you on the path. But when you're following Jesus, you do. There's no such thing as solitary Christianity. You need friends Who can be your izer? But that's not all that it is. Um, There's more to it than that. We need friends who can choose not only to be our izer, who can choose to shamar. Another word I want to talk about real quick. So the definition biblically of a friend is an izer, a helper who chooses to shamar. Shamar comes from first. The first time it's found in scripture is in Genesis chapter four. These are the two sons of Adam and Eve. After sin entered the world, all bets were off. It was chaos, and we know the story of, of, uh, of Cain and Abel, right? So this is from Genesis 4. If y'all want to take your Bibles, I encourage you to. And uh, if you didn't bring one, there's one in front of you. Genesis is super easy to find. First book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 4, verse 6. Then the Lord God said to Cain, who was jealous of his brother, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you don't do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. One thing God is essentially asking Cain is to do what is right is to be a friend to your brother, to be a friend when you don't feel like it, even when you're jealous and you feel left out, Be a friend. That's what it means to do what is right, or you can choose not to. But he said, sin's crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now, Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out into the field. And when they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, Cain said. Am I my brother's keeper? Now, it's my belief, you've probably heard this from me before, my belief is that um, the rest of the Bible is a response to that question, that this is like a turning point in the whole Bible. When Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? The whole Bible is then a response to that. God's saying, yes, you are, you are, you are one another's keeper. You are your brother's keeper. You are your neighbor's keeper. You're even your enemy's keeper is the Bible's response. That's the gospel. And the word keeper comes from the Hebrew word shamar. And shamar is a Hebrew word that means to guard, nurture, cultivate, or preserve. And an example, uh, other examples of where shamar comes up in the Old Testament is when God put Adam and Eve in the garden. And he said, it is now your time to cultivate the garden. To shamar, you can keep the Garden of Eden by taking care of it. And then God said to Abraham later in Genesis, as for you, you must keep or shamar my covenant. And so a friend is someone who keeps. A friend is someone who works on you, cultivating you, tilling the soil of your soul, pruning the parts of you that don't need to be there. So this is a little bit, I think, a little bit of the reason why we've gotten to the place we are with friendship. Because friendship, true friendship, hurts And it's hard to hear the words of a friend sometimes because a real friend will tell you what you need to hear, not just what you want to hear. That's how you know the difference between a friend and a fan. And some of us avoid real friendship because we don't want that kind of accountability. But a real friend will always prune you for your good. And they'll do that gently, I hope, with love. But I think one of the reasons we fail at friendship often is because the world has convinced us that that's not what love looks like at all. That love is affirmation. That, that it's important to love yourself more than anything. Self-love is the key to finding real love. No, it's not at all. At least not the way the world talks about this In fact, that's the worst kind of trap. What that is, is an idolatry of the self that avoids real intimacy and friendship. If you think love looks like someone who doesn't ever wanna change you because they love everything about you, which is, by the way, the most common answer you'll hear among young men who are dating, what are you looking for? Someone who won't want to change me, someone who will love me. And women say a very similar thing, someone who will love me as I am. What that means is, I'm good. I just need to find someone who agrees with me. (laughs) That's why we struggle on the dating scene and in marriage and even in friendship, because a friend is someone who chooses to shamar, to cultivate, to uh, trim back that which in our character and our hearts does not need to be there. When I think about Gio and I um, and the love that she has for me, the love that I have for her, it's, you know, it, I still find her every bit as attractive as I did when we were 18. Like, I'm not just saying that. She's a beautiful woman, and I'm a very lucky man. I get that. But 23 years in, I can I can be very honest with you and tell you that that, it's not the physical spark or the chemistry alone that really lights my fire anymore. And I know everybody likes to hear their pastors talk about their love lives. And so I'm gonna share with you. (laughs) I'm not gonna get into it, but (laughs) don't worry. I want you to come back next week. (laughs) But I will say that what really I find the most romantic aspect of our relationship is thinking about all the times that she has chosen to love me as a friend, to befriend me, to shamar, to cultivate me, to tell me what I need to hear, not just what I want to hear. Like, all the times she's chosen to love me when I've been altogether unlovable, when I've made it very difficult for her, she's continued to love me as a friend, as an Azair, who knows how to shamar, like, like, that's the fuel of our romance at this stage in our lives. And if you're looking for a vision, I think that's it. I think it's that kind of self-sacrificial friendship that we should all be striving toward. Now, where do you find a friend like that? you all are like, look, there's not a lot of geos out on Tinder these days, Pastor Eric. Now, what do you do? And I understand I understand, again, how lucky I am and how lucky I got and all that. So I'm not, it's it's apples and oranges sometimes. But where do you find a person like this to love you the way that a friend does? What's important to note that when you're following Jesus, he becomes our model for everything. So we look to Jesus first. And what does Jesus say about where to find a friend, where to find someone to be good to you? Well, there was a young man, a, a, a religious man, who came to Jesus with similar questions. First, he said, what's most important in life? And Jesus said, the most important things in life are loving God and loving your neighbor. And then the the, the guy had a follow-up question. He said, well, who is my neighbor? And instead of Jesus saying, well, it's the guy across the street from you. It's, It's the person next door. Jesus told a story. Some of you know the story that he told. He told the story of the Good Samaritan to illustrate something about friendship or being a good neighbor which I think are synonymous in the Bible. And what he told was uh, the story of a man who walked along a road and got beat down by a bunch of thugs and left for dead on the side of the road, bleeding out, naked, stripped, helpless. And a couple of religious guys, pastor folks, came by and had no time for the man, no time to be available to him or a help, an his to him. They, they had no interest in choosing to shamar this man, to keep him. They just kept going on their way to church, ironically enough. But the third man came along, a Samaritan, who were known to be the bad guys in Jesus' culture. They were the mortal enemies of the Jews at that time. A Samaritan came by, saw the man, and mended his wounds, and got him to shelter, and paid his bills, and asked nothing in return. And then when he finished the story, Jesus asked the man who had questions another question. Now, who has been a neighbor to the man? And he answered the Samaritan. And then Jesus said, go and do likewise. And the whole point of the story was to show how Jesus often, when we ask him questions like, where can I find a friend who will love me like this? Jesus will shine a mirror in our faces and say, to whom are you? A friend. How have you been a friend to others? Instead of just sitting around waiting for someone to love you like you deserve to be loved because, you know, I've waited all this time, and I'm a good person, and I think I'm attractive. Like, instead of waiting around to find someone to love you like that, Jesus says, let me show you how to love people. Let me show you how to be a friend. And that's really the point of the gospel. The gospel alone can show us how to unlearn all the trash this world teaches us about self-love and total affirmation and finding someone who won't try to change me. Jesus shows us a better way. He is the image of true friendship. And if you want to know what it means to love like a friend, look no further than Jesus, who came from heaven to our turf on our terms to meet us in the flesh. Though we didn't deserve it, we denied and betrayed him, Jesus still laid his life down for us. And in the moments before he did, he told his disciples, ordinary people like us, two things. In John chapter 15, first he said, I no longer call you servants from this day on you're my friends which was a big deal you're my friends we're friends now they didn't they didn't deserve that they weren't perfect by any means but Jesus still befriended them and called them friends he promoted them to friendship for Jesus friendship was a promotion for us it's a demotion and that's that's our problem not his so then in John 15, he said, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Why did Jesus come? So that we would love like he does, so that we would be a friend like he is. Why? Because next verse, greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. According to the gospel, there is no greater love on earth than friendship. There is no stronger, more passionate, more romantic love than a love between friends. And if that love is intimate and in and, and the marriage context, sexual and all that, that's great. That's an added bonus. But the friendship is the thing because we have a God who sees us in our brokenness and our frailty and our lack of deserving his love. And still he says, we're friends. No one has greater love than a friend who lays down his life for his friends. And then Jesus laid down his life for his friends, showing how great his love is for us. The point of your existence, the vision God has for your life, his preferred future, marriage aside, Success on the dating scene aside, 2.5 kids in a white picket fence with a nice big house in River Oaks aside, all of that aside, what he wants for you is to show you how to become a friend like he is. That's what salvation looks like. You know why? Because the, the love of a friend is set apart in this. Only a friend's love is fully free and fully chosen is the love of the will, like we talked about with agape. And what I mean is, when you love your family, be honest, you do that in part because you have to. Because you share blood, you share a name, and people would look down on you if you didn't love your family, <laughs> even though it's tempting, all right? When you love a romantic interests, let's say your wife or your husband, especially guys, if you love your wife, Oftentimes, you go over and above to show her how much you love her so you'll get something in return. (laughs) If we're honest, I don't want to talk about what guys hope to get in return, but there is a certain incentive that guys will often pursue. And women have their own incentives for showing extra affection. I'm not going to get into that. That's deep stuff there. All right, it's psychological stuff. I'm not going to go there. But we are incentivized in romantic love life. But friendship is freely chosen. There is no uh, incentive in the flesh to love a friend the way Jesus first loved you. There's no family obligation tied to it. It's just a love of the will. Only a free and saved soul can love like a friend loves. And that's what Jesus came to do with you. Marriage status, relationship status aside, that's his vision for your life. And it's very conceivable that learning to love like Jesus will make you a more attractive commodity on the world's dating marketplace, okay? You're more likely to find someone if you become a friend, okay, but that's not the point. You're more likely to be a better spouse who heals your marriage if you become a friend to your spouse instead of an adversary. If you, if you demonstrate when they come home from work tomorrow that you are in their corner, and not against them, but for them. You are there, is there, choosing to shemar. You're there for them. No matter what, that's what real friendship looks like. And it has the power to change your marriage. It has the power to change your life. And That's why Jesus came, to make you a friend to others, as he has been a friend to you. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for this reminder of your love today and what it means. The gospel. The essence of romance, the most romantic love on earth is the love of a God who calls us friends and then pours his life out and his blood out on the cross to demonstrate his deep love for us. Lord, you and your love are everything. All that we want is to be filled with that love and to share it with the world around us regardless of our relationship status or our success on the dating scene or how our marriage is going, you're calling us to be friends of you and friends to one another because that's what it means to live in the light of your salvation. We thank you for that reminder today. We pray in your precious name, amen.